This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 189, Sinking. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Have you ever had that sinking feeling? Disaster slowly approaches. You find yourself paralyzed, partly by the terror itself, partly by your own inadequacy, mostly by the sense that there's nothing you can do about it. This week, we will discuss the ebbs and flows of Peter's faith in the storm, the death of American seamen, and the subsequent search for a scapegoat, the nature of quicksand in real life instead of cartoons, and the perils of building a dam on your game table. We'll start with what I've been preaching. You're probably ahead of me on this. How could I possibly have a sinking episode and not talk about Peter and the storm? Matthew chapter 14 describes a very famous encounter, which we usually refer to as Peter walking on the water, which is kind of ironic because the whole point of the story is that Peter didn't walk on the water. He did for a while, of course. You know the story. He wanted to walk on the water because Jesus was on the water. Approaching Jesus meant walking across the sea. He takes his eyes off of the Lord. He sees the wind. He sees the waves. And he becomes afraid, and he begins to sink. And, of course, he reaches out to the Lord. The Lord lifts him up, carries him to safety, and chastises him a little bit. Why did you doubt? I wonder if Peter had ever read Psalm 107. It seems to speak directly to the situation there. Psalm 107 begins in verse 1, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary, and gathered from the lands, from the east and the west, from the north and from the south. And then, of course, the psalm goes on to talk about various circumstances in the lives of the people of God. And eventually, sailors come up in conversation. Verse 23, Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed, Then they were glad because they were quiet, so he guided them to their desired haven. Sounds a lot like the Jesus and Peter story, doesn't it? And this passage in Psalm 107 is interesting because God specifically is given the credit for the storm in the first place. Why would God bring this kind of adversity upon his people? Maybe to create an opportunity for faith, to drive them to their knees. Maybe we get a little full of ourselves sometimes, and we need to remember how lost we are without God, how desperate we are for his protection, that oftentimes we absolutely take for granted. In all of these little vignettes that the psalmist gives us here, they cried out to the Lord. It's the overriding theme here. We find this difficulty, we find this hardship, sometimes of our own making, and we say, Jesus, save us. We don't want to sink. We don't want to die. This is the main takeaway, I think, for us when we consider Peter and the storm. Sinking is a choice. You don't have to do this if you don't want to. Jesus has empowered you to walk. It was prophesied back in Isaiah 2, verse 5. 
that this one would come into the world and empower his followers to walk in the light. And this is the way John describes our walk of faith as a walk in 1 John 1 verse 7, walking in the light as he himself is in the light. Jesus provides the light and then he provides a pathway for us to walk to him in the light. No matter where you are, no matter how deep in the morass you may feel like you are, there is always an opportunity for delivery because Jesus is stronger than your storm. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, the text says in 1 John 4 verse 4. Whatever is going on out there, whatever is causing you to sink, Jesus is more powerful than that. And that's not the same thing as saying Jesus is going to remove the storm. Maybe he will and maybe he won't. But whether the storm abides or not, and by the way, the storm does not necessarily go away immediately when Peter reaches out to the Lord. It may not go away immediately for you or for me. But whatever the circumstance is or is not, Jesus is more powerful than those circumstances. And what we need to do in these moments is continue to reach out to Jesus. Do not lose your faith. Intensify your faith. Practicalize your faith. Hebrews 12 verse 2 describes it as fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Don't allow the circumstances of life to cause you to look here and there. Don't look at your problems. Look at the solution. Jesus is more than powerful enough to keep you from sinking. The issue is not whether he is powerful enough. The issue is whether you have enough faith. This is what I've been reading. In Harm's Way by Doug Stanton is a fascinating story. It describes the voyage of the USS Indianapolis in early 1945, in the closing weeks of World War II. The ship was sunk, as it turns out, just a handful of days before the cessation of hostilities. 317 seamen were rescued, the rest perished, and did so in the most gruesome of ways. Exposure, shark attack, etc. And especially given the timing, the entire nation celebrating after four years of horrible, horrible hostilities. The Navy was not about to allow a damper to be placed on the celebration. So when news got back about the Indianapolis, they had to find a scapegoat. They wound up settling on Captain Charles Butler McVeigh. This is despite the fact that virtually all of the survivors said that the captain behaved in exemplary fashion. They did absolutely nothing wrong. He was court-martialed. His reputation ruined for his entire life. Eventually, he committed suicide. After the captain's suicide, Stanton's book came out, and it is generally credited for resurrecting Captain McVeigh's reputation. He was exonerated posthumously, but the damage had already been done. And it's sad how we behave like that sometimes. When bad news happens, we have to find someone to blame. And oftentimes, as may have been the case with the higher-ups in the Navy in this particular situation, maybe it's a matter of making sure the blame doesn't settle on us. The bottom line is bad things happen from time to time. And yes, sometimes it is your fault or my fault or somebody's fault. Sometimes, maybe even especially in war times, bad things just happen because it's a bad world we're living in. 
And maybe shifting blame can help you feel better about yourself, help you sleep better at night. But what it basically does is it buys into the notion that, generally speaking, we are in control of our world. Bad things happen because bad people intervened in this particular situation. It's not my fault. And because of that, we can continue along our way through life blissfully, assuming that this was an aberration and that there's no reason to expect that something like this is going to happen again, which very well make it more likely that it will happen again. It's a short-term solution to a long-term problem. In fact, it's the longest-term problem we have. The inequities, the pain and suffering, the death. This has been our lot since Adam and Eve, and will continue to be our lot as long as time stands. I'm not suggesting that there isn't blame to go around when bad things happen, and I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't assess blame where it's appropriate. But if we are going to pass blame, let's do it wisely. Let's do as Jesus says, judge righteous judgment, John 7 verse 24. That means getting beyond the emotion and looking for actual facts. Assessing all of the circumstances, taking some time. I realize that taking time in the process of blame shifting is not really a thing we do in the modern world. It is much, much easier and perhaps much more satisfying to pass judgment immediately. That's the way the world is going to be in the modern day, and I don't see any way of changing that. But it doesn't mean the world's way has to be our way. I suggest to you that when you find ill in the world or in your neighbor. Take a moment. Look at things from different perspectives. Decide whether blame needs to be assessed at all. If we can grow an instinct to minister first and to chastise second, I think we'll do a lot more good for the cause of Christ. Jude puts it this way in his short letter, starting in verse number 20. But you, beloved, Building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. That's what we're going to receive. We're going to receive mercy. Well, what do we do in the meantime? And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. I like the idea of mercy upon these who are destroying themselves. That doesn't mean we ignore reality. That doesn't mean we countenance sin. And certainly it doesn't mean we countenance sin in the body of Christ. But realize these are people in pain. These are people who need help. And we may be in position to minister to them. Maybe we can show grace and mercy and kindness to someone. And after having done so, Help them appreciate what very well may be their own personal failings. They may deserve the blame. But because we were hesitant to lash out at them with anger, they are brought to repentance. They are drawn to this lifestyle of love and mercy and compassion that Jesus himself exemplified in the flesh and that we are trying to copy ourselves. Blame shifting may be very satisfying in the short term. But I think if you take a little time, you'll find a reaction that is much more conducive to your own personal spiritual growth and to the maintenance of souls within the body of Christ and to the spread of the gospel to a lost and dying world. 
that needs a lot of mercy. This is what I've been hearing. Growing up, I really thought quicksand was going to be a bigger problem than it turned out to be. That thought is not original to me. As best I can tell, it came from comedian John Mulaney. A lot of other people have appropriated that. This is the age of Twitter, after all. But to the best of my understanding, he's the one who first said it. And he said it better than I just said it also, by the way. So good work, John. Keep up the good work. Maybe cut back a little on the cussing. Thanks very much. Quicksand appears all over the movies and television that I grew up on. It's a very dramatic kind of way to die. A very desperate way to die. Makes for good TV. Except it's not really. Quicksand does exist, and it is a problem. It is a mixture of water and sand, essentially, that will grab a person and suck them in. And the more you struggle, the more sand you displace, and therefore the deeper you sink. But the vision that we see, for instance, in The Princess Bride, where someone is just completely consumed by the sand, that doesn't happen. You'll sink down about halfway, and then you'll stop. So I'm told. I don't have any personal experience with quicksand, of course. Now, that's not to say quicksand isn't dangerous, because it is. It's virtually impossible to drown in quicksand, unless you go in face first. But you can definitely die there. You die from exposure. You die from panic. You're stuck and you don't know what to do. You thrash around and sink even deeper. What you can do, in case you're ever stuck in quicksand, make a note of this. You can work your way onto your back and essentially swim out. As long as you keep your face out of the quicksand and don't make a lot of sudden movements and take your time with it, you can and will get out. I hope very much that neither you nor I are ever going to have to use that knowledge, but it's nice to have just in case. I was thinking about that in the context of sinking and reminding myself that traps in this world don't arrive on schedule. They don't look like you expect them to look. Perhaps you entered into the world at 18 years old, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, thinking that you knew how the world worked and you knew how to meet with success and how to avoid failure and all of that kind of thing. I certainly did. And I suspect that your experience was very much like mine. The world did not look like what you thought it was going to look like. The dangers that you thought you were prepared for, A, you probably weren't prepared for, and B, did not look like the real dangers that you encountered. What are we going to do in these situations? You can panic. You can freak out. You can freeze. And doom yourself not because the danger was so great, but because your response to the danger was inadequate. Or you can find strength. You can find courage. You can find allies. You can find relief. You have it within yourself to succeed in whatever kind of stressful situation, whatever kind of adversarial relationship you may run across. But a big part of your success is going to be containing your emotions. These traps that are laid for us by the devil 
are as emotional as they are physical. Don't lose heart in these moments. Have confidence. Lean on the Lord. Be aware of your surroundings. Avoid the pitfalls. Avoid the quicksand when you can. And when you can't, when your attention wavers, or when you do your absolute best and you still stumble into a trap, realize your Savior is greater than any kind of problem you may have. And we're talking here specifically about spiritual problems, spiritual challenges that we may face. The best way, of course, to prepare for spiritual eventualities is to know God's Word, to have a personal relationship with Jesus, to have Him living in your heart, and having His will express itself in your life by walking in the way that He's walked. Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Staying alive is a good work. Continuing the good fight, that's a good work. And God has given us, through the Holy Spirit, all of the essentials to know how to deal with the difficulties of life. And there will be difficulties. Are we prepared for it? Probably not. Can we prepare for it? Absolutely. So do what you can to avoid the problems in the first place. Do what you can ahead of time to arm yourself against problems so that you will be able to survive and thrive when the time comes. And maybe more than anything else, build faith in your heart. Build that confidence, going back to the first segment when we were talking about Peter, where no matter what happens in your life and no matter how poorly you respond to it, you can still reach out to the Lord and he can still be there for you, not necessarily to erase the consequences of your own choices, but to give you hope and peace in a flawed world, in the midst of your own mistakes, realizing that God loves you, that there is still hope for you, and that heaven is ultimately our home and not this world. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, if we focus on him, no matter how deep or permanently we may feel like we are sinking, there is always the call to rise up in this life, and ultimately in the life to come. This is what I've been playing. If you remember the staycation episode a few months ago, you remember how I told the story of how Tracy and I took a couple of days off and played seven brand new games in the span of two days. One of those games was Whistle Mountain, and we liked it a great deal. Whistle Mountain is a game in which you are playing the part of dam builders. It's maybe a little bit more elaborate than that, but it's essentially you're building a dam. You're in this river gorge, and you're constructing a project made mostly of scaffolding and machines. It is your job as one of the engineers on this project to lift the level of the dam up higher and higher. And you have workers along the way at every level who are there ready to step in and help you with the job. The problem is the more work you do, the higher the water level rises. And if one of your workers is caught by the rising tide, he falls into the whirlpool. And if he stays in the whirlpool, he's going to die. And more importantly, he's going to cost you victory points. So you don't want that to happen if you can avoid it. Ideally, you're able to rescue your people You're able to build a better dam, 
and rise to success somewhat more quickly and more efficiently than your competitors. We have been privileged to watch the world change for the better, progressing in all kinds of ways. But progress always comes at a cost. I don't think there are any exceptions to that. Oftentimes the cost is worth it. Occasionally, maybe it's not. But there's always going to be a cost. And I see this working in the Lord's church as we try to, quote-unquote, build the body of Christ, as we try to grow a church, as it were. Usually we're talking about numbers in those situations, and maybe that's not the best measurement there is, but certainly the easiest. We plant seeds and we start to see results. We start to see growth, growth individually, growth in families, attendance is better, contribution is better. It's all good. Well, it's not all good. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to grow, obviously. I'm saying there are consequences. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about us being a body and the natural result of different people being in the same body, some receiving more accolades than others, some receiving more attention than others. And Paul points out that the ones who get the most attention tend to be the ones who quote unquote deserve it the least. The ones who come forward on a Wednesday night confessing sin. The ones who have been absent for six months and suddenly show up on a Sunday morning. We don't give awards, not at Lakewood's Drive anyway. We don't give awards for perfect attendance or for most conversions in a year. We appreciate that. I certainly hope we appreciate that. But that's not the way that glory goes out. Glory tends to go to the ones who are struggling, who are underachieving. And that creates a dynamic where strong Christians may resent weaker Christians. It's kind of an older brother, younger brother thing, borrowing from the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Same thing in Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus tells the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. People are able to go into the vineyard and work hard for 12 hours. And then they are confronted with the fact that people who hardly worked at all are going to get the same reward as they do. That success in their endurance, in their faithfulness, provides the opportunity for pride. Is it bad to endure? Is it bad to be strong? Absolutely not. But there are challenges that come along with that. What we need to do is not allow our successes to morph into failures. Be watchful for yourself. Be aware that the world you live in today is different than the world that it was yesterday and different from what it will be tomorrow. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. There are always going to be opportunities for you to give in to pride, to selfishness, to arrogance, including and maybe even especially when things are going well, when you are personally progressing through life, when you're assisting others in progressing through their lives. The days are evil. Bad things happen to good people, including and particularly the people of God. Our objective is to glorify God. And you can do that in the good days. You can do that in the bad days. So wherever you happen to be in your spiritual walk today, I hope that you're on the strong side. Maybe you're on the weak side today. Wherever you happen to be, though, allow your circumstances to guide you toward Jesus. And if you are progressing, and God bless you if you are, Don't forget those who might be left behind. Take a moment to lift them up. 
so that we can all have the blessings that Jesus has waiting for us, so that we as a body can grow together and glorify God effectively together. You have been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.